Hello and welcome to the 94 Feet Report. I am your host, as always, Eric Spiropoulos, and you can follow me on Twitter at Eric Spiros. This is the 94 Feet Report basketball podcast hosted on the 16 Wins a Ring podcast network. 16 Wins a Ring is where I also write about the NBA, and I also cover the Houston Rockets for Hoops Habit on Fansided. If you missed our previous episode of the show, Tamberlin Richardson joins the show and we preview and predict each of the first round playoffs for the NBA playoffs that, that start uh, started on Saturday um, because this episode will be released on Monday. Um, in this episode, we have Mick Minnis uh, from Australia, who's the author of The Curse, The Colorful and Chaotic History of the LA Clippers, um, an excellent book that I'm in the middle of reading about. Uh, talks It's really thorough about the Clippers history, some of the interesting storylines. And, you know, if you find the Clippers to be a fascinating team, uh, if you're wondering why they, you know, they haven't over, they've underachieved in the playoffs in recent years, well, you should really read this book because their history is, is certainly chaotic, certainly colorful. And Mick does a really great job of detailing it. He, he spent over five years, uh, you know, in the process of writing and, and conducting research for this book. He talks to former players and coaches um, and staff members and, and gets a really great, um, great read about the, uh, interesting and colorful history of the LA Clippers. Um, so I, I definitely recommend to check out the book and we're going to put a uh, link to where you can buy the book on Amazon um, uh, in the episode description. So check that out. And, uh, you know, we'll be joined shortly by Mick Minnis, the author of The Curse, the colorful and chaotic history of the LA Clippers. All right. We are now joined by Mick Minnis from Australia, the author of The Curse, the colorful and chaotic history of the LA Clippers. Mick, how are you doing today? Oh, really good, Eric. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Um, you know, I've been reading through your book, and I'm not even a Clippers fan, but I just find it such a fascinating read, and it really is such a fascinating story, um, the history of the team. Um, so I figured you know, it'd be great to just talk with you about, you know, the process of the book, what you enjoyed uh, during your process of writing the book, um, and then later on we can shift our attention to this season's Clippers and, you know, how you think they're going to fare in the playoffs and, and the future for the team. So I think kind of the most appropriate first question is just asking you about the process of writing the book. Um, it's a really long book. It's over 500 pages. It, de- it has, has so much detail in it. Um, so I guess my first question is, why did you decide to uh, write the book? What really inspired you to, to take this project on? Uh, so I'm also uh, a coach basketball down here in Australia. And in um, 2008, I had the opportunity to um, go over to the States and to take a team over there that I was coaching and, and we travelled around for a few weeks and played against, you know, some junior college teams and some Division Three colleges and and as part of that trip we got the chance to go and watch the Clippers season opener um, and they played the Lakers and the, it was Baron Davis's first game for the Clippers. So it was it was a really hyped up match in terms of match up in terms of the Lakers had just come off their finals defeat to Boston and, um, you know, the Clippers seemed to have put together a pretty nice team and lots of people were talking about them as a potential playoff team that season. And, you know, given that we were from Australia and we had a whole group of people who had never been to see an NBA game before in their life, you know, we were really excited to go and watch this game and um, it turned out to be quite a fizzer. Um, I mean, the Lakers ended up winning by nearly 40 points uh, it was a blowout from sort of end to end, and that was the that was sort of the the first thing that planted the seed. Um, I, I, I previously I knew um, quite a bit about the Clippers franchise, but that was the thing that got me very interested in learning more about about the team and their history. Yeah, 
Yeah, that, that's a really great backstory, actually, something I probably wouldn't have expected. Um, I guess, so my next question related to the process of writing the book itself was, uh, how long did it take? Because I mentioned this is a really long book, a lot of detail. You talk to people from the organization's history. Um, so how long did it take to really complete this whole process? When I came back to Australia after that trip, I didn't jump straight into writing it. And um, When I got back, Initially, um, myself and another guy who played on the team that I was coaching, we began sort of, you know, emailing each other articles and 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 sort of sharing bits of information about the Clippers. And um, I initially sort of looked to purchase a book about the Clippers, and then I realised there wasn't anything substantive that had ever been written about the franchise. Um, so it was probably a two probably a two year period of. You know, just just looking into the Clippers just for my own interest and and learning more about the team. The actual process of starting to research for the book, um, I, I started that straight after the 2011 NBA Finals, um, and from there it was a five-year process um, of you know researching and chasing down interviews and and collecting articles and um, you know drafting and editing and all that, and so. It was, took me from middle of 2011 to the end of 2016 to the time when the book was published. Yeah, it's a long process and it's not a surprise considering how detailed and thorough and, and how long the book is and it's really impressive. Um, you know, I guess my final question related to the actual process of writing the book was, um, you know, you, you, it took a lot of work, or you said over five years. So what was your most enjoyable aspect of the process of, of putting together the information, researching, contacting people and ultimately writing the book? Yeah, look, without a doubt, it was it was um, probably the um, interviewing people. Um, I mean, you know, I got to speak with a lot of sort of former NBA players and coaches, and um, and and so you know, talking to guys like Norm Nixon and Welby Free and Gene Shue and Paul Silas, and and getting to hear their their memories and their personal stories and their insights um, from their time playing and coaching the NBA. Um, was a real privilege, I think. Um, and for a lot of people, uh, they, the time they spent at the Clippers was a very difficult um, part of their career. You know, for a lot of guys, mm-hmm. uh, like you know, w- one person I interviewed was Don Casey, and um, you know, he he um, has had you know an amazing career both as a player and as a coach. And you know, he's the only guy who who won a championship um, as a teammate of Bill Russell and a teammate of um, Larry Bird. And he's a former Coach of the Year uh, winner, and you know, is coached in Los Angeles and in New York. And but I mean, for Don Chaney, that the time he spent coaching the Clippers was probably the darkest days of his professional career. Like he was there in the mid '80s, he coached the team the season they won 12 games um, and almost set the record for the most losses in an NBA season. And you know, so that's one example of, of um, uh, pe- pe- people who it, it's very. I think it's very different interviewing people to reflect upon, um, you know, highlights of their career where they're very open and willing to share and talk about it compared to interviewing people to talk about, you know, really difficult times in their career. Mm -hmm. And what I was really amazed with and blown away time and time again was just how, um, how willing people were to talk about, to share their memories, even when they were sort of difficult and painful memories. Yeah, I mean, it can totally be difficult. I mean, even if, I mean, just 
from anyone, you know, to, to ever talk about, you know, dark times in their lives, in their careers, the ups and the downs, but particularly the downs with the Clippers. Um, it can always be tough to get people to really open up about that stuff, but you got them to do it and that, that led to a great, thorough and, and detailed book. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit to, you know, talk about some of the content within the book or basically content from Clipper history. Um, and I, I, I want to get your take on... Uh, your favorite moments uh, that, you know, it could be a top three, could be top two, maybe it was your favorite moment um, of Clipper history that you kind of discovered through the process of writing the book. Um, and, and maybe this is a, a moment that's different that maybe you didn't enjoy writing about the moment as much as other moments, but a moment that you really kind of stuck with you when you kind of discovered how things played out. Yeah. Um, I think the, the most interesting sort of story that I uncovered from my own personal perspective was the story of Derek Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and like now I've come to the view that I think Derek's prob- uh, probably the most underrated player in, in the history of the NBA. Um, and he's a name that, you know, not a lot of, um, you know, hardcore Clipper fans know who Derek Smith is, but, you know, sort of your casual NBA fan from 2017 may not be familiar with his career and, and how remarkable his sort of um, uh, rapid rise was to become one of the best basketball players on the planet. Um, I mean, Derek, and, and that was a story that when I went into the, when I started researching the book that I knew nothing about, you know, I, I knew nothing about Derek's uh, life. You know, he was a guy who, he, he grew up, you know, really poor in, in, in Georgia, in a small town in Georgia. He was um, one of seven siblings. You know, he's raised by a single mum. Uh, you know, a house with a you know dirt floor and, and no indoor plumbing. Um, he started attending uh, school when he was just four years old, and that was purely for financial reasons, you know, to save money on childcare. And so, as a result of that, he, he his freshman year at college was he he enrolled at Louisville when he was just sixteen years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he graduated, he, he was. Um, you know, a lot younger than than other people who had been through four years of college, and um, there was very little interest in Derek um, from an NBA perspective. I, I spoke with um, one of the people I spoke with was Pete Babcock, and he was um, at the time when Derek uh, left college, he was uh, in charge of scouting for the Clippers, and he said that they really liked Derek from a sort of um, personality viewpoint, like in terms of uh, his character. But he was viewed as being a, a, the classic tweener. And, and I guess the NBA is very different now than what it was in the early 80s. But mm-hmm. he was a player without a position. You know, he was six foot six and he had played, you know, he had played center in high school and he had played as a, as a inside player at Louisville. And so he was viewed as being, well, he's the size of a, of a shooting guard, but he doesn't, he's, he's got the skill set of a big man. Um, so as a result, you know, he got drafted in the second round. He didn't get picked in the first round and he went to Golden State. And at Golden State, he was underused and, and also misused, used in the wrong way. They, they were bringing him off the bench and he was kind of playing as a, as a third string power forward for the Warriors. Um, and at the end of his rookie season, he was waived. And without without sort of a bit of luck, and, and with uh, he would have been that would have been the end of his NBA career. You know, he was essentially he was out of the league. He, he was waived by the Warriors, and there was no interest from any other team. And to to the, the, to illustrate that point of there being no interest, um, 
one of the people I spoke to for the book was Jim Lynham, who was the who had just been appointed as the head coach of the Clippers at the time when Jim, when Derek Smith was waived, mm-hmm. and um, you know D- Jim Lynham was approached by a friend um, and and was asked to put Derek Smith onto the Clippers summer league team as a favour as the tenth man to sit at the end of the bench and to practice with them. And so this shows where Derek was at this time in his career. In the summer of 83, you know, he was he was relying on personal favours to scrape into the end of the bench of a summer league team. And Jim Lynham didn't want to do it. And Jim told me that, he said, because it was his first coaching head coaching job in the NBA, he, he saw the summer league as much more important than what it really was. Mm-hmm. And he was really sort of concerned with, you know, having the team play a particular style. And... He just didn't want anything to mess that up, and he thought, "Well, I don't want to bring this guy in that you know he's not good enough to be playing." And anyway, it turns out that on that day, you know, Derek Smith was in the gym, and and so you know, Jim Lynham went and spoke to him and said, "You know, do you want to come and have an informal sort of tryout? Like, come and come and show me what you've got." And and Derek went to an empty court with it was just Jim and Derek, and he just blew Jim Lynham away with his 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 athleticism and his power and. And also his his, his skill set, like by the, he'd worked really hard on developing his jump shot, and so Jim ended up put him on the summer league team. He excelled in the summer league. He earned a roster spot with the Clippers. Uh, he spent a lot of that season coming off the bench for the Clippers. But at the end of the eighty three eighty four season, um, he finally was sort of unleashed and put into the Clippers starting five. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the following season, you know, this is the eighty four eighty five season. Derek Smith was, for all intents and purposes, one of the best players in the NBA. I mean, he averaged over 22 points that game. He was twice named as Player of the Week. And, you know, he was going toe-to-toe with the best shooting guards in the league and more than holding his own. Um, And the following season, you know, he was named Player of the Week again. He was the first Player of the Week for the 85-86 season. And he was averaging 27 points a game at the time. And then he, he injured his knee. And from that point, he injured his knee. He also had some other health concerns that came up um, whilst he was recovering from his injured knee. But from that point forward, he sort of never regained um, the same sort of um, the same level of, of game as what he had before he got injured. And so Derek had this really rapid ascent to the top of the NBA mountain, and then this rapid fall as well. And tragically, he he passed away. Um, he was uh, he was an assistant coach for the Washington um, Bullets at the time, or maybe they were, maybe they had become the Wizards in the early nineties. And um, yeah, he he um, tragically passed away on a on a on a cruise ship with um, you know team with you know a corporate sort of event with the team's sponsors and season ticket holders, and he had a heart attack and passed away. So I, whilst I wasn't able to speak to Derek, spoke with many of his former coaches and teammates and. You know, the universal thing that came through was just what a what an amazing um, p- amazing player he was, but also what an amazing sort of person he was, and how uh, blessed they were all to have known him and to have had him in their lives. Yeah, I remember reading about uh, Smith's journey, and I remember being taken aback. And you know, I hadn't really known much about Smith at all. Um, and I remember reading that section and and kind of realizing that this is an underappreciated, underrepresented, um, not really a story that's been told. Um, you know about Smith's career, his highs and his lows, and just the unique story that got him to succeed with the Clippers for that brief amount of time. Um, so it really was fascinating to read about Smith's journey. Um, you know, were there any other 
moments that come to mind of Clipper history. I mean, I personally enjoyed really hearing about, you know, how close they were to signing Kobe Bryant. Basically, at the peak of Kobe Bryant's career, the Clippers really went hard after him and that they believed that they were really close to signing Kobe. And I remember really uh, enjoying that uh, chapter of your book. Um, so were there any other moments that really stick out to you? Yeah, look, the, I mean, the Kobe one's really interesting. Uh, and I think it's it's reflective of that, you know, throughout Clipper history, I mean, that's a sort of common theme that comes through throughout the book that there were all these moments where, you know, if things had have gone one way or in, that where that where they were set up to be, if you look at, I mean, if you look at the at the state of the Clippers roster at the time they were pursuing Kobe, if they had have been able to sign him, they would have had a, a you know, a fantastic team. Um, they could have potentially had a starting five of Sean Livingston, Kobe Bryant, Corey Maggette, Alton Brand, and Chris Kamen. I mean, like mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a, that's a team that's definitely a championship contender in the mid two thousands. Now, I mean, whether um, whether Kobe was ever serious about coming to the Clippers or not, there there are two very distinct schools of thought on this. Um, some of the people I spoke to believed that Kobe was simply using the Clippers for leverage um, to try and sort of. Because at the time, also, I don't know if you remember, but at the time, the, the Lakers, Phil Jackson had left as head coach of the Lakers. And so one of the things they were doing was they were looking for a new head coach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether Kobe was using this Clippers situation as a way to sort of leverage some power within the organization to have a say in who was going to be the new coach of the Lakers, um, or, or whether he was legitimately considering going to the Clippers. But, I mean, one thing is certain, the Clippers offered him a very unique set of circumstances in that he could have a fresh start away from the Lakers and things had gone quite toxic in that last season with the Lakers. Um, he could have a fresh start, but he could still continue living in Southern California. And, I mean, this was at the time where, you know, he had been, um, uh, you know, accused of sexual assault or rape and um and and you know he's and he he had he had it publicly admitted to um um you know an extramarital affair so obviously his family life would have been in a fair bit of turmoil at that time as well and here was a way for him to stay in live in his same home with his wife and his children but continue to play in the nba and you know, also the Lakers at the time, their roster. I mean, once once Shaq left and Phil left, their roster was in a bit of a shambles at that time. Um, you know, I think the next season with Kobe, they won thirty four games, maybe sort of like low thirties mm-hmm. for wins, win total. And I mean, the Clippers definitely had a better roster at that point in time. And if he was looking for a way to, you know, uh, stay at the top and and keep competing for NBA championships, the Clippers offered him the the quickest path to do that. But, uh, you know, it just, it depends on, you know, who, it depends on, I guess the only person who really knows for certain how serious he was is Kobe himself. Mm. Um, And over the last few years, Kobe's made a number of comments that reflect that he was very serious about coming to the Clippers. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is an interesting thing, kind of one of those, when you look back at NBA history, what ifs, you know, if, if Kobe had gone to the Clippers, you know, maybe they, they, they certainly were, would have been a championship contender, maybe they would have uh, surely made a conference finals, um, but then they could have seriously competed for a championship for years to come with that talented roster, and then Kobe kind of at, at the prime of his career, but it was not to be. Um, speaking of uh, trying to make the conference finals, let's, let's turn our attention to this season's Clippers. Because this season's Clippers, 
they face an interesting kind of test and they kind of face an interesting they're they're at a roadblock right here um where things could really you know change significantly it based on the results of these of this upcoming playoffs um you know they start their first game against the jazz tomorrow um so what is your prediction for their first round series with the jazz this year Look, I'm 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 pretty confident, and this is not to be disrespectful to Utah, but I, I'm pretty confident that they'll they'll progress beyond the first round. Um, I think that they're in a in a different class to Utah. Um, I think that you know that what they have. I mean, besides Austin Rivers, they have they have a healthy roster. They're they're playing really well, and this is the right time of season, right time of the season to sort of be clicking on clicking on all cylinders. I think I think they'll probably progress. Look, I think if they're going to have a, a, a good chance of um, taking down Golden State in round two, they've got to get past Utah quickly. I think they have to dispatch of them in, in, in four games would be great. Five games is still okay. I don't think they want the series to drag out to six or seven games. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I'm very confident that they, they get past Utah, yeah. Yeah, and specifically with the Jazz, if you let that series go on, Jazz are a really physical team. They're really good defensively. So the longer that series goes, you know, you're not playing kind of an offensive shootout. You're playing a, a tough, grinded out defensive kind of game against the Jazz. So, you know, I think that, I think the Clippers will advance too. And I think that, you know, in the, specifically in the first round, I think you'll see a Clippers team that really, that realizes, you know, what could happen if they were to be eliminated in the first round or if things don't go well. You know, this team knows that, um, They've got a lot of players hitting free agency. Things could be significantly different if they underachieve in the playoffs once again. So I think that in the first round, you'll see a really focused Clippers team that's kind of has their eyes on the prize uh, moving forward in the playoffs. Um, you know, you mentioned them potentially trying to take out the Golden State Warriors. So I guess I want to get kind of an overall playoff prediction of, of how far you think the Clippers will go um, in the playoffs this year. And, you know, how far, you know, how long of a series could they make it with the Warriors in the second round? Yeah, I think I think ideally the Clippers would have um, would have would have earned a better playoff seeding. Um, I think you know if they had have got a second or third seeding, they could have avoided playing Golden State to the conference finals. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously that 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 hasn't been the case. I, I think it's worth noting that the the primary reason why that hasn't been the case is because of injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a bit of hysteria. Around the Clippers in the middle of the season, um, when they, you know, when they were tumbling down the standings, um, but I, I mean, I think it's a very different thing to if you if the team's not winning when they've got their, you know, their superstars playing, as opposed to if they're struggling to win and they're, you know, I mean, for a period of time there, they were they were relying on a sort of tandem of JJ Redick and, and DeAndre Jordan, and like, you know, no no offense to, to either player who are both really good role players, but they're not they're not the type of players you can build a championship contending team around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the, the Clippers with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin healthy is very different than when they're missing one of those two players. So I mean, if I'm realistic, I still think Golden State win in, in the second round. Mm-hmm. I, I will I will say this: I think that if the Clippers can find a way to get past Golden State, I, I think that there's nobody beyond that team that they should fear. I think that um, you know Houston or San Antonio they match up really well against, um, and you know I think they I, I personally I think they're a better team. Um, 
than, than either Houston or San Antonio. And I think that, you know, if they've made it to the NBA Finals, I mean, we only got to see one Cleveland uh, Clippers game this season, really, because the second time around, you know, they, the Cleveland rested their entire team. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that was pretty disappointing. But I, I think they match up well with Cleveland as well. I, I think the big test is going to be getting past Golden State. But that makes for a very interesting off-season because if they don't get past Golden State, then that then they still they've still fallen short at the same hurdle they've fallen short so many times before, and the narrative is still going to be well they haven't got past the second round of the playoffs, um, and so that makes for a very interesting off-season. Yeah, it certainly does, and, and and I like how you said that. You know, if they get past the Warriors, you you can see them, you know, making to the the finals and potentially winning the championship because it kind of seems like the Warriors are that kind of team that if if the Clippers can beat, they kind of get over the the hump that the, the thing that the team that's been standing in their way for so long. You know, the, the Warriors have have really done really well against the Clippers in the regular season the past you know couple of years since they've you know really exploded as a as an elite team. Um, so I could, I see that kind of you know if they can get over the Warriors. They've matched up well with the Spurs and the Rockets in recent years and even in this past regular season. Um, So I kind of see it. I can see how if they were to beat the Warriors, which, you know, I'm not going to predict, but if they were, it could be that kind of, you know, getting over the hump, making the conference finals. They match up well with San Antonio or Houston, and then, you know, they move on from there. Um, You kind of led into my my next question is uh, kind of about the future. So theoretically... You know, as you said, you you expect that the Warriors would win realistically, um, and that leaves the Clippers in an interesting situation. You know, Blake Griffin and Chris Paul are, are have player options, and they're guaranteed to to uh, drop those player options and decline them and become free agents. JJ Redick will be a free agent. We've heard rumors about Doc Rivers going back to Orlando for a potential GM and coach role. Um, now that the Magic have fired their GM, so you know. If the Clippers were to lose in the second round um, again to the Warriors, um, would this be the last stand for their current kind of core as we know them? Potentially. I mean, I think I think that they should keep the roster together. And I, I, I think I'm becoming... that The group of people that, that share that opinion is, is becoming smaller and smaller um, by the year, by the day, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they get knocked out in the second round by Golden State... I think there'll there'll be a call to you know make a trade and to blow the team up and to you know start a rebuild. Um, but I'm of the I'm of the view that you know you don't. It's very very difficult in the NBA with the, with the current collective bargaining agreement and the draft rules. It's very difficult to end up with a situation where you have two elite players on your roster at the same time. Um, and, and the Clippers have that at the moment. You know, they have Chris Paul and they have Blake Griffin. Now, you know, there's differing there's differing views as to how good those two players actually are. I, I tend to believe that Blake is, is is underrated at the moment. I think he's one of the truly elite players in the league. Um, so I, I I look I, I look I make a comparison between the Clippers and and the Dallas Mavericks. Um, of a few years ago where, you know, Dallas were consistently sort of around the mark of a championship contending team, but never able to win one. And when they finally broke through and won a championship in 2011, by that stage, a lot of people thought that the championship window had passed Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I give credit to Mark Cuban for sort of keeping the team together and, and tinkering around the edges rather than, you know, making huge sweeping changes um, and if you look at Dallas, you know that the year they won the championship, 
there's a lot of similarities with the Clippers, even in the composition of their roster. You know, in the insofar as you know, Chris Paul and Jason Kidd are very, you know, both sort of elite point guard, veteran sort of leaders, and you know, a power forward that's a centerpiece of the offense. And Tyson Chandler and DeAndre are very similar players. And you know, in, in comparison to this year's playoff run, you know, the the big thing for Dallas that year was getting past the Lakers in the second round. I think that. Um, whoever won that series is probably going to go on to win that year's championship. And um, when they got past the Lakers, all of a sudden, sort of the the path opened up for them. Um, but even if they don't win this year, I think there's lessons they could learn from Dallas. And, and I think one of the lessons would be to keep that core together. Um, and I think that the, what they should be looking at doing is making some 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 changes around the edges rather than at the core of the team. One interesting idea, I think, is is to look at what's happened with Houston this year. Um, and I, I'm not of the, you know, in the middle of the season, there's a lot of people calling for Doc's head and fire Doc was, you know, trending on Twitter and everything. I mean, I think, I think um, I, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of just making reactive moves and, and firing coaches, especially in the middle of the season. But there is something that is that can be said for what what Houston have been able to do this year. Um, you know, bringing in uh, Mike D'Antoni changed the style of play for that team, and you know James Harden's role has shifted, and it's reinvigorated his career. And I think that there's there's a, if they are going to make a big change, I think that the place to make it would be in the coaching department rather than the the, the playing roster because it's it's a lot easier to bring in another elite coach and keep your elite roster together than it is to keep the coach and then try to change the roster. I mean, I definitely think they should be open to the possibility of trades and seeing what's out there, but um, I wouldn't be making a trade for, for the sake of showing the fan base that they're doing something. Yeah, I agree with you. And I really actually, uh, I like that uh, comparison to the Mavericks. I hadn't really thought about it like that, but it does kind of match up in a lot of ways. Um, and, and ironically, you know, after the, the year after the Mavericks won the championship, now Cuban is criticized for having blown up the team basically right after they won. Um, but it's funny and, and kind of ironic that he keep he kept the core together for so long and eventually things broke through and they won a championship. And the similarities are there for the Clippers. Um, and, you know, I, I agree um, – you know, drastic changes. I, I wouldn't make drastic changes, of course. I would be open to hearing trade possibilities, et cetera, and stuff like that. But I wouldn't be making reactionary moves just to say, hey, like, you know what, we did, we underachieved again, but we're making these moves, so got, we're still doing something, fans. So I don't agree with that kind of mindset if they were to take that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on, on this kind of, you know, there's been a lot more backlash recently of coaches taking on both the GM and the coach role. Um, you know, Doc has been criticized um, in the past couple of years that he is both GM and, and coach, and he's been criticized a little bit for, you know, kind of short-sighted moves that he's made, um, some trades that haven't really worked out, the, the lack of a, of a good bench for this team that they've struggled with their bench for a couple of years. Um, so w- what is your take on, you know, maybe they should look to uh, bring in a, a GM and let Doc focus on coaching um, if, you know, they kind of underachieve or lose early in the playoffs this year again? Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, the, the Clippers would tell you that they've done that, that, you know, Lawrence Frank is now in charge of the front office. And, and, and so they would say that the roles have been um, differentiated. And, and, and But, I mean, whether that's actually uh, reflective of, you know, I think Doc still has a final say on everything. I, I, think, the, I think the lesson to learn from the, from the Doc 
you know, coach and GM role thing is that it's never a good idea to make um, decisions in in the moment. You know, I think that you need to, you know, and that can be in a good moment. I mean, if the Clippers were to win the championship this season and, and then Steve Barmer said to Doc the next day, we're signing you up as coach for the next 20 years mm-hmm. because you finally delivered the championship, I think that would be a really bad mood move. And I think that you can't make decisions when your emotions are involved. And I think that's what happened with, with Doc Rivers. I think that um, he did a really good job of steering the franchise through the 2014 Donald Sterling v. Stiviano mm-hmm. scandal, crisis, whatever you want to call it, um, which was, you know, I, I don't think he gets... I think he got a lot of credit for that at the time. I think now, after the fact, people forget what an amazing job he did. Um, not just of... I mean, on the court, you know, that, that they went through a, an emotional seven-game series with Golden State and they defeated Golden State, and while all that, while all of that stuff was unraveling around them, I mean that's a remarkable achievement for for Doc and for the team. And then they went on to the next series, and and you know they came within a couple of seconds, a couple of plays here or there of, of knocking OKC out in the second round. Um, and and I think that that I think Doc did a, a masterful job of supporting the players during that time, and also supporting all of the other employees in the organization. I think the mistake that was made was straight after that, Steve Barmer took it as, well, this is our man and we have to give him as much power and as much responsibility as possible. Mm-hmm. I think they needed to sort of uh, wait a little bit and let cooler heads prevail. And I don't, I, I'm not a fan of the of the GM and, um, and coaching roles being shared. I think they're very different roles with different skill sets and they're both very demanding um, roles that take up a lot of time. And I think that the bed, I think there obviously needs to be really. I think good organisations have very good communication between those two parts of the of the basketball operations, but I think they still need to be separated. Yeah, I have to agree with you. And, and one of the biggest reasons I, I kind of agree with you that they, the the roles should be separated is that these are these are yes, the organisation should have a, of one goal of of winning, and that should be the goal for the entire organisation. But within that. A GM, you know, is is expected to implement more of a long term plan, while a coach uh, is just thinking about the next game. You know, he's just thinking about the next game, how they're going to beat their next opponent, and stuff like that. So, for for a coach to have, you know, both the coaching and the GM role, you know, Doc Rivers can make decisions when, with his coaching hat on and say, in you know, short sighted, like focusing on this season. Meanwhile, a GM is more expected to kind of think about the long term, balancing the salary cap, developing young players and, and, you know, having draft picks and stuff like that. While a coach is looking kind of short term at in what could help his team as soon as possible, which is why I think that oftentimes, not always, there are people who can balance it relatively well. Um, but usually it's just, it's just easier, smoother, um, and, and usually occurs better when the roles are separated with obviously constant communication and, and input from both sides. Yeah, and, and, and like, you know, a great example of that, Eric, occurred in the first two years of the Clippers' existence where, you know, Gene Shue was the coach of the team, but he also had a really big say in, in, in the what the trades and drafting and all that type, all, all that type of stuff. And and they traded away, the Clippers traded away two future first-round draft picks. One was to get World be free, and the other one was to get um, Joe Bryant, Kobe Bryant's dad. And, and you know, World worked out for them in, in a way in, in that, you know, he was he was the team's top scorer and everything. But, you know, I think, and Joe Bryant 
didn't work out for them. But those two draft picks, one, they turned out to be one was Charles Barkley in the 84 draft and one was Brad Doherty in the, in the 86 draft. But, I mean, you know, Gene Shu at the time, he was he was trying to build a winning team and get the team into the playoffs and compete for a championship. And so he wasn't worried about what was going to happen in the middle of the 80s. So, you know, by the time Donald Sterling was the owner and the team was floundering in the mid-80s, well, that was some of the payoff from that was 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 from things that had happened five, six, seven years earlier. Um, so, I mean, look, I think Doc's done... I think Doc's been maybe... Maybe he's... The sort of judgments about his performance as a general manager have been a little bit harsh. I think that, you know, one of the things is once, once they decided to keep DeAndre, um, they've got three players that are all earning, you know, the, the bulk of their salary cap. So they've, they're only able to sort of, you know... Um, tweak around the edges and if you look you know one of the criticisms is the bench if you look at what he's done over the past few years I mean he's brought in he's tried a lot of things he's brought in a lot Mm -hmm. of different players and you know and at the start of many of these seasons people have said oh great you know we've got Lance Stevenson or we've got Josh Smith or we've got Spencer Hawes like people have, have been Paul Pierce they believe that they've found the answer it's only when those players haven't panned out um, that then, then it's sort of in hindsight, it's like, well, what's Doc doing? I mean, he is trying things. I, I actually think, I mean, maybe this is the Australian bias in me. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest mistakes the Clippers made was not signing Joe Ingles. Mm-hmm. I mean, Joe Ingles did the entire preseason with the Clippers. Um, was one of the last players cut, I think, in the in the summer of 2014. I think it was, and I, I think Joe would have been a perfect, perfect fit for that team. I said it at the time. Uh, and I thought after he got cut by the Clippers, I thought he was heading back to Europe to play. And I think that, you know, seeing how um, what a valuable player he's been for Utah over the past few seasons, you can imagine him filling that exact same role for the Clippers. I mean, I look at Joe Ingles as a Matt Barnes-type player, but with a better outside shot. Um, and I think that he... And one of the things about Joe Ingles is that he's very much about the team. He's not about his individual success or his individual numbers at all. He's very much a team player, and even though he would have been brought in as a rookie, I mean, he was a he was an NBA rookie with a wealth of international experience, and I I think that they at the time I thought they were crazy for getting rid of him, and I I, I tell you I'd, I'd much prefer Joe Ingles to be playing for the Clippers, um, you know, in 24 hours time than <laughs> to be playing against them. Yeah, and he's certainly earned himself what should be a really nice payday this summer with his great play this year. Um, yeah, and like you said, yeah, you know. Doc has tried a lot of things and brought in a lot of players and, you know, just because they don't pan out, then everyone's saying, oh, Doc, what are you doing? Well, I have to say, you know, covering the Rockets, Daryl Morey took a huge risk. If Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon didn't stay healthy enough to play both over 70 games, um, if Mike D'Antoni clashed with James Harden, and if, you know, if it doesn't work out and the Rockets, again, have another 40 to 42 win season, then everyone is basically saying, you know, Morey, what are you doing? You know, we laughed at you then and we're laughing at you now. But... The players stayed healthy. The system, you know, James Harden was a star player that was willing to to kind of work with his new coach, change the system drastically, and and now everyone's praising more, and it look, looks very likely that he could win Executive of the Year. So you know, just how things pan out, just maybe one or two moves could really significantly tarnish your reputation, yet at the same time bolster it, depending on how good those moves work out. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things, you know, in, in terms of talking about whether they keep the team together or, or blow it up over the summer, I mean. They haven't had a playoff run yet, 
that hasn't been interrupted by injury or, or you know, or the 2014 scandal, which was unlike anything that we've ever seen in NBA history before, and I think we'll never see anything like that again. So, I mean, it's really hard to say this team's not working like we need to do something different because, you know, there's there are so many positive signs that say that when this team is together that they... Um, that they are capable of being an elite team, um, and you know, the really good evidence of that is is when they, you know, eliminated the defending champions in the 2015 first round, and and you know went toe to toe with the Spurs, and and um, and even with Chris Paul getting injured in Game Seven, they were still able to overcome and beat San Antonio. So I, I have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith in in the group that they've got now. I think they need to. Um, and you know maybe this year's playoffs they're also going to have that extra motivation of knowing that there's sort of um, we'd be interested to see is it going to be motivation or is it going to add extra pressure to the team? But mm-hmm. they know that there's sort of a ticking clock there, and they know that if they don't if they don't perform well in this year's postseason, it might be their last go around together as a group. And for someone like Chris Paul, he would also be aware that this might be his last. This keeping this group together is probably his best chance to win a championship before he retires. Yeah, which I think makes the Clippers one of the more fascinating teams to keep your eye on this playoffs because will, how will they respond to this kind of inevitability that there will be significant free agents on the team? This could be their last go-around together. Will they respond with motivation, being locked on, focused on the on the prize of advancing far in the playoffs? Or will that just add more pressure to them to a team that, you know, they've suffered with injuries, but they've also had some tough times with, with you know, dealing with pressure, comebacks against, you know, specifically, obviously, everyone talks about that 2015 uh, Game 6 collapse against the Rockets, but it's surely a lot to keep your eye on with the Clippers um, this this playoff. So, Mick, I really want to join you. Uh, thank you for joining the show. Um, before we go, I want you to kind of promote where everyone can find your book, where they can find you on social media. I know you have a website as well, so just throw out all that information so everyone can get it. So, yeah, my blog is at um, clippercurse.com, and there's a bunch of articles up there. There's also um, a nice little excerpt from the book that uh, talks about when Donald Sterling first purchased the team and he decided to hold a, a free a free throw shooting competition and um, and what happened when he had to pay $1,000 to a local <laughs> businessman. Uh, it's a great story. Um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at um, mminas8, so M-M-M-I-N-A-S-8. Uh, on Instagram, um, we've got a little page where we often run sort of historical facts about the Clippers, and that's at, at ClipperCurse on Instagram. The book's available from Amazon. It's also available on my website. There's a there's a link there where you can buy it on my website. And yeah, thanks a lot for having me on, Eric. No problem. It was a great chat about the Clippers. Uh, so everyone, check out the book. It's called The Curse: The Colorful and Chaotic History of the LA Clippers. I'm gonna put a link to uh, where you can buy it on Amazon in the episode description, as well as uh, Nick's uh, social media handle. So make sure you check out uh, Mick's work and uh, him on social media and get some great LA Clipper info. Thanks for joining us, Mick. Thanks a lot.